Let's go ahead and pray as we get started. Father, we thank you um, just for the people we interact with. We thank you for the conversations we're able to have. Lord, it seems even just rare to kind of have a, a regular conversation with anyone today, um, but um, thank you. Thank you for uh, the uh, young adult Bible study that uh, Jeffrey and Emily are a part of, and this this fellow who's nice um, but doesn't know you coming along, I, we pray that your word would do its work, that spirit, you would drive the word home into his heart. Lord, we pray for this uh, woman who uh, Stephen Brenda encountered at Walgreens, who they were able, just talking uh, in the card aisle uh, about um, the things of you and just someone hurting, and we just pray that she would indeed come and that we would be able to surround her with love, uh, the love of the Trinity, um, as you express it through the love of your body, oh Lord God. So we just pray for that. Uh, we pray in general for us as a, as a body to be able to connect with the, um, the elderly in our community. Thank you for Tom and just his faithfulness in ministering to the community and pray that uh, we would be able to come alongside him in that. Lord, we pray for the school, uh, Horizon Christian, um, Lord, that uh, just thank you for the opportunity that Carol had with this um, graduate or someone who's soon to graduate and just uh, the opportunities to speak of you. We thank you for that and pray that those seeds would bear fruit. Lord, we pray for the whole school right now as it's reeling from the death of Elijah Pate, oh Lord God, and just pray that you first that you would be with the family, the Pate family, and that you would encourage them and comfort them during this time. Lord, we also do pray for the, 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 the questions it raises in the students' lives and hearts that those that are at the school um, would be able to speak of you and of the hope that is in you, the hope that Elijah evidently had and his parents have. And so we just pray that you would use that even though uh, it, is, it is a grievous thing, it is also because it's the death of a believer a joyful thing. And we pray that you would use it uh, for the good of um, your people, uh, the glory of your name. We pray this morning as we continue to speak of you, Lord God, uh, we are in your presence speaking of you, and we want to speak carefully and honorably uh, that your name might be lifted high, that it might be treated as holy. And so we just pray that as we talk, continue to talk about you as the triune God, that we would speak accurately and honorably of you. Help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, um, we are continuing uh, with talking about um, God as Trinity, and what we've been doing for the last couple weeks is just... Uh, starting in the Old Testament uh, and coming to the New Testament, just looking at how that revelation of who God is in eternity uh, has developed uh, and how God has revealed himself through time and through the scriptures. Um, so we're in the New Testament. And last week we talked about, um, we talked about Matthew 28, uh, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So th uh, three, name, uh, three persons... Uh, sharing the one name, and name doesn't just mean the name of God. It does mean that, but it's uh, God ties to that, his character, his attributes, as we saw in Exodus. Um, so uh, there's that we talked about. We uh, talked about actually a number of things. We also talked about 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. For us, there is one God, the Father, uh, uh, through, um, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, uh, uh, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Uh, and so we talked about that. And really all we're doing as we walk through these passages is we're just showing, all right, we see that there, Scripture is very clear. There is one God, but we see in Old Testament and especially in the New Testament uh, that there, um, there is a plurality of persons uh, existing as that one God. 
And so that's, we're just marching through passages. I'm also giving you these to use. If you've not had a list of passages in your head or mind that you could go to and show to someone, hey, here's, here's the Trinity. Here's where it shows up. Uh, hopefully these passages are useful to you. So we're going to go through a few more, and we're going to finish up the New Testament, uh, Lord willing, this morning. So let's go to Philippians 2. Let's go to Philippians 2 next. Uh, let's go to Philippians 2 um, and verse 5. Now, the context is Paul is writing to the Philippians. He's talking to them about gospel partnership, that word that's usually translated fellowship, koinonia. We talked about that um, a couple years ago when we worked through Philippians. Uh, but in that context, he's talking about not looking out for your own interest, but the interest of others. And then he gives Jesus as the supreme example of that. And so in that context, we read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So someone read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Okay, so what does this help us see about the Trinity? Yeah, that's very important, right? Um, that really this is a narration from uh, the Son's pre-existence um, before Incarnation to then his incarnation and his work in his incarnation to his, uh, his ascension, right? So all of that narrative. And so we start with Jesus existed in the form of God, uh, which is not, uh, which is the idea of this word form. If, if you want the full meal deal on this, you can listen to the Christmas sermon I gave. But basically the form of God, it's not just like, it, it's like all of who God is. Uh, it's the template of who God is, right? And so it's not just, like, oh, this is similar but not the same. This is, this is what it means to be God. And it's even more than that, right? What does it say? It says, he did not count uh, being equal with God something to be grasped, which means what? He did hold equality with God. That's what it means for him to exist in the form of God. Uh, but he didn't hold on to it tightly to the point where he's like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not becoming incarnate. I'm not doing this mission. In fact, just the opposite. He emptied himself doesn't mean he got rid of his deity. It means that he, uh, he came in a humble form. Uh, he cloaked his glory with humility. Uh, didn't ever cease to be God, but added the form, in the same word, right? The form of a human being, the form of a slave, actually, is how it's talked about here. Uh, but then there's something else uh, that we see towards the end of this, um, this narration. What do we see at the very end that's very astounding? Yeah, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. That's a citation of, um, of Isaiah 45. 
in Isaiah 45, it's very clear that is um, that Yahweh to every every knee shall bow to Yahweh. Now, what did we say is the um, the um, in the Old Testament, the Jews, when they're referring to it, instead of referring to God's name Yahweh, what did instead they refer to him as? It's the same in our English Bibles mostly. Lord, right? And so what do you see here? You see that every knee is bowing, every tongue confessing, and they're confessing the name of Jesus, but what about Jesus? He's Lord, meaning he's Yahweh, right? Um, so when it talks about the Father um, uh, giving him the name, that is above every name. Well, what name is above every name? The name Yahweh, right? And the, um, he's saying, well, the Father is uh, displaying that Jesus, he always had that, that reality. He always had that, that name um, given to him, but now he's displaying it publicly before all the universe, right? Uh, as the Son and as the incarnate Son. Um, and so this is one of the most one of the strongest texts in all of the New Testament to directly show Jesus' deity. Um, but you also see uh, in this some of the uh, workings together of the persons, right? So what is this? You now, you might think, well, if, if Jesus as is Lord, he's Yahweh, and he's receiving all of this glory from all the universe, you might think, well, is then the Father's glory diminished? Well, that's not the case, because what does it end with? to the glory of God the Father. Uh, and so we see more of that reality and those relationships um, played out that the Father sends the Son, uh, the Father glorifies the Son, but that also redounds to the Father's glory, right? So we get glimpses of what's happening uh, in that, okay? Any questions on this passage? Again, I'm just, we're doing flybys, right? And we're just, I'm just picking out like... Uh, Here's, here's some key aspects of this passage that show the Trinity and even Trinitarian relations. Any questions? Yes, Ken. Yes. Oh, do you mean like when people say, well, isn't that prideful of God to like desire glory or to exalt him or Jesus to be proud? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I think part of that would be to Yeah, and I've had people ask me that same question. Well, what is God's chief end? God's chief end is to glorify God. Um, and if he doesn't, then he can't be God because the thing that he would worship would be God, right? So the only being in existence for whom it is right to seek glory uh, is God himself. Um, if he doesn't, then God is an idolater, and that doesn't make sense. It contradicts who he is, right? So that's kind of how you would answer that, that, that person. Now, you might say, well, that still seems like where, where am, you know, we, we're so selfish, right? Where am I in all of that? Where am I? Uh, where's humanity in all of that? Well, actually, uh, that's the good, the best, the goodest, the best, um, <laughs> The best news, that really is the good of the good news. What is the good of the good news of the gospel? It is that God involves us in uh, the Trinitarian life to be able to enjoy him. In other words, God has so constituted us as creatures that we uh, are designed to behold his glory. And as we behold his glory, we enjoy it. And then we reflect that back to him in praise and worship. 
And that's when we're most satisfied. So to quote John Piper, right, um, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So for God to glorify himself and to display his glory, and then he catches us up in the middle of that, uh, that is our greatest good. So it is actually good news that God glorifies himself, because if he doesn't, it's actually not good news. Um, and so that's how you can kind of talk about that reality with other people who are like, well, isn't that just proud of God uh, to do that? No. In fact, here, it's amazing, we actually see the humility of God, don't we? Uh, the humility of the Son uh, to be willing, though he's in the form of God, he's always existed there, he's not clinging to the display of that glory uh, and those prerogatives, but he is what? He's emptying himself, not by divesting himself in any way of his deity, but by cloaking his deity with humanity to serve humanity so that we can experience, as it is said here in this passage, that, that glory. So does that help? No, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. So, uh, Okay, so that's Philippians 2. Now, we've talked a lot about the Father and the Son. What about the Spirit, right? And we talked about the Spirit a little bit last week. Uh, but let's, let's pick out some passages that help. Let's go to Matthew 12. Let's go to Matthew 12. And in Matthew 12, it's been, I think it's been over a year since we were in Matthew 12. I have to look back at the schedule. Um, like I said, we're making good progress, actually, for, uh, for working through all of it. But in Matthew 12, uh, you have the situation where Jesus, um, where Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. And it's kind of like this, this turning point where the crowds are saying, well, can this be the son of David? Is this actually the Messiah? And then the Pharisees jump on that, and they say, no, 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 no. He's doing this by the power of Beelzebul. And so then Jesus... Um, you know, pushes back on that and says that's insane, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but in the midst of this, uh, look at what he says in 1231. Someone go ahead and read Matthew 1231. What is blasphemy? Yeah, good. So uh, a way to, uh, it's, it's against God, right, in which we, um, that's a probably a fairly way of um, putting it, lower his status in some way. So you could do that directly by demeaning God or trying to demean him with your words. You could do it indirectly through actions, right? Now, who is blasphemy being committed against in this case? The Spirit. Well, you can only commit blasphemy in this sense that is being talked about here against God. Right? But the blasphemy is being, con uh, being given against the Spirit. And to the point where Jesus is talking about, well, this isn't going to be forgiven. Right? Uh, well, if we're talking about an unforgivable sin, the only unforgivable sin you can commit is against God. And blasphemy against God, but here we see blasphemy against the Spirit. So this indirectly does what? It proves that the Spirit is God. Do you see how that works? Okay? Um, so that's one passage it's indirectly, it's not directly, but it is indirectly ascribing deity to the Spirit. Any questions on that? Yes, Tony. I think it's very important, too, to recognize the distinction Jesus makes in verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Mm -hmm. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. will not be forgiven. Mm -hmm. And so that is 
Mm -hmm. barrier, if you will, in the horizontal flesh level. Okay, fine. But if you go to the God level, you're in trouble. Right, and in particular, like, this is like, you see, it's very clear God is acting through Jesus and all of this. Um, and you, there's, it's very clear that the Holy Spirit, that God is behind all of what Jesus is doing in his incarnation, right? And so you, you speak against... Um, now, I still think, I don't know if the Pharisees had actually committed that sin, but at least Jesus is saying, you're very darn close. <laughs> um, and he's warning them, right? Um, but nonetheless, if you were to commit this sin... Right, um, it's a sin against the Holy Spirit. It's a sin against God. It cannot be forgiven. This indirectly shows that the Spirit is um, equated with God. Okay, Bruce. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes, at a very basic level, that would be true. Now, th- in this passage, it goes very much beyond that, right? Where you're ascribing to this, you're ascribing what is happening by the Spirit to Satan. So it's not just that you're demeaning him, like, oh, you're not giving him glory, which is sinful, right? Uh, it is. It's like you're actually ascribing it to the devil, which is, um, which is, is exactly topsy-turvy of the way the world is, right? Um, and it demeans um, God. Yeah. Okay, ne- next passage, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, we looked at this passage. We looked at it a lot when we were doing talking about sanctification and how we grow in sanctification. To Bruce's, you know, what Bruce just said about the Spirit working in our lives, he works uh, continue, growing us uh, to match up to our standing. Our standing is already holy in God's eyes. But then the Spirit works in us to, to make that line up. Um, so kind of in that connection, we see 2 Corinthians 3. Um, and someone read 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through uh, 18. Okay, so how does this help us see the deity of the Spirit? The Spirit. Yeah, the Lord is the Spirit, right? Uh, and here, again, it's kurios in Greek, which is the equivalent of Yahweh. Uh, there's dispute about whether Lord here is referring to the Son uh, in particular, like Lord Jesus Christ, or if it's referring, because he's been talking about Exodus, and he's been talking about what happened um, with Moses beholding the glory of Yahweh. And so... Uh, a lot, most commentators, uh, um, especially recent commentators, think that um, the Lord here is a reference to Yahweh, and so they're saying uh, the Spirit's Yahweh. Uh, he is deity. Um, he is, and it, it, even to an extent, he was involved in the Exodus um, situation as well. We actually know that from the Old Testament as well. But um, here, at least for us, it pretty clearly says, "All right, um, the the Lord is the Spirit." Okay. Uh, let's actually back up one book to 1 Corinthians, and let's see another. 1 Corinthians 2. 
Um, and someone read 1 Corinthians 2. And let's start in verse 9. Um, and the context here is Paul is talking about the apostolic ministry of the new covenant. Uh, and he's talking about uh, where does this all come from? And um, he, he links this up with talking about the Spirit. Um, so someone read 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11. How does this help us understand the deity of the Spirit? He certainly has unlimited access that no one else is going to have. Very good, right? Um, he has unlimited access uh, to what? Well, to himself, but to, 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 God's to God's thoughts, right? He has unlimited access to God's thoughts. Uh, it is not possible for anyone to have unlimited access to God's thoughts except God, right? And that's the whole grounding for Paul's argument, Paul's argument here is we're apostles and we are speaking revelation. Revela uh, we are, you know, even as he's writing 1 Corinthians, really. Uh, but the apostles are speaking um, in their offices as apostles. They're speaking revelation. Well, where does that come from? It comes from the Spirit. And how can we be assured that that's coming from God? Well, the Spirit of God searches the depths of God. So that grounds the, the authenticity, the spiritual authority of what the apostles are saying. That's his old argument. Uh, and so here we see, well, there's only um, one person that has access to the thoughts of God, that is God, and the Spirit has access to those thoughts. Therefore, the Spirit is God, right? Um, so we see that. Um, you know, there's, I could, there's other places. We can do this over and over and over again, all day long, really. Uh, another good place is Acts 5. We're not going to go there, but that's Ananias and Sapphira, and Peter says, uh, you not lie to... Um, uh, how is it possible that uh, you've been, Satan has filled you to lie to the Holy Spirit? Uh, and then in a couple, like a verse later, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. Uh, and so it very much becomes clear that Peter is talking about uh, the Spirit is God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. Okay, so that's another one. Now, at this point, let's, let's shift gears just a second, um, because some people, through... Um, even today, but also through history, have said, well, okay, the Holy Spirit's God, but this is like the power of God, the force of God, the, um, it's not, he's not a person, he's more of a force, okay? So some people will talk that way. Um, and uh, what we want to talk about here, though, is, yes, the Holy Spirit's God, but not in the sense that he's some, like, uh, force of God or uh, just the power of God, uh, we want to talk about, uh, because we believe Scripture talks about, the Holy Spirit is a person, okay? So the Father's obviously a person. The Son is a person. Uh, what we have proved is the Spirit is God, but we have not necessarily directly seen that the Spirit is a person and not just like a force, okay? So let's look at a couple passages in that direction, all right? Um, and basically the argument is, 
Well, let's take a look at what the Spirit does, um, and uh, let's um, say, well, is that the action of an impersonal force, or the action of a person? Uh, let's start with Acts 13.2. Let's go to Acts 13.2. Okay, so in this context, there's Antioch, they're praying and fasting, um, and, uh, and we're, we're, kinda, we're not looking at the primary point of this passage, we're looking at a secondary application, but what, how does this help us in thinking about the Holy Spirit? What do we see here? He has a voice. He speaks. He, yeah, so he's a speaker, right? Uh, just like the Father is a speaker, the Son is a speaker, um, and the Spirit, here we see, he's speaking, right? Uh, well, um, uh, the people speak, right? Um, so we see that. Uh, you can see something similar in Hebrews 3.7 where it's referring to the Old Testament scriptures and it says the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says. And so the idea is when scripture speaks, God speaks, but in particular, the Holy Spirit speaks. And so the Holy Spirit is a speaker, okay? Uh, let's go to another passage, Ephesians 4. Oh yeah, Bruce, go ahead. Yes. That's a uh, very good. Yeah. So he, he's, a, he's a me. He's an I. So here's the reality of what we're, and we're going to talk about this more um, probably the next couple of weeks, right? Um, we're trying to grasp this reality in the Trinity that there is one God, there is one being um, who is God. But within the life of God, there are three eyes, okay? And we see that manifested in the scripture. The Father speaks as I. The Son speaks as I, and the Spirit, um, the Spirit speaks as an I, right? Um, so we're tr that's what we're trying to en encapsulate, and I'm thankful that you pointed that out, Bruce, right? Because we see that in how um, the Spirit speaks about himself. Um, good. Uh, let's go to Ephesians 4.30. So Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, uh, and more broadly to the churches of Asia Minor, but, um, and he's in the section of Ephesians where he's applying truth and he's exhorting them to action uh, and saying, here's what your lives need to look like if you believe uh, what we've talked about in chapters one through three. So in that context, we see Ephesians 4.30. Someone go ahead and read that. Okay, how does this help us see the Holy Spirit's personhood? He has emotion. Yeah, he has emotion. And what's the emotion here? Grief, grief right? Um, he has grief. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. So that's the idea uh, of a person. You could also um, argue that uh, we see here he's sealing. He's sealing for the day of redemption. So he's doing work. He's doing an action. Um, and... So that's, that's uh, coherent, or it coheres with the idea of being a person. Uh, let's look at one more, first, and then I'll let you, let you ask any other questions that are accumulating in your mind. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 12. Sorry, we're bouncing back and forth. I probably could organize these a little bit better. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, we're talking about gifts of the Spirit given to the body. Um, and uh, in that connection... 
we see verse 11, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. What does it say? Okay, so what do we see here that argues for the personality, the personhood of the Spirit? He has a will, right? Very good, right? He has a will, and um, yeah, he he has an action. He empowers, uh, and he apportions, right? Um, so we see that these are works of a these are works of a person, right? And so the Spirit is not an impersonal force or power. He is a person. Okay, um, and there is now. Don't misunderstand, right? Obviously, and what we're seeing in these texts, even in this text, uh, the Spirit is empowering, right? So He is a person empowering, but He's not impersonal, as just like some of this vague force or wind, even, right? We see that in the creation, the idea of the Spirit is co- is correlated with the idea of wind, but that doesn't mean He's impersonal, like the wind or breath, right? He is a person. Who empowers? Okay. Um, questions you want to ask about the spirit and the deity and the personhood of the spirit? Yes, Lael. Uh, so at least in the context of Ephes- we'd have to, let's go back to Ephesians four really quickly. Um, so this is where we always look at the context. So that's the challenge when we're doing what we're doing, right? Because we're looking at a topic, and I'm trying to highlight for you like. Uh, um, just key texts, um, but in, we don't read the Bible just verse, one verse at a time, right? We understand that each verse has its context. I've tried to, you've noticed, I'm trying to summarize the context as we're going through these things, but um, let's look at a little bit broader the context for Ephesians 4, uh, 30, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So with that broader context, what does it mean to grieve the Spirit? Yeah, Tony. It means to act exactly contrary to the, the sympathy that God and the Spirit and Christ have in themselves. Yeah, good. And you are not acting according to that. Right, and that manifests itself in very concrete ways, like... Uh, demeaning one another, theft, malice. Um, Or think about this in terms of Galatians. Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit, but as opposed to what? The works of the flesh, right? So if you practice the works of the flesh, which is manifested here in Ephesians as well, right? You're grieving the Spirit, Uh, which should give us pause, right? When we sin and when we practice the works of the flesh, we are actively grieving uh, the Spirit of God, who indwells us. It's not like he's... And that's the key thing about... Um, we, we understand this in the history of redemption, that we are in a very particular moment, or age, uh, if you want to put it that to those terms, in redemptive history, where the Holy Spirit is not just around me and empowering me like happened in the Old Testament. He's in me and indwelling me. 
So when I, then I, I act out of the works of the flesh, right, I am grieving the Spirit of God who is indwelling me, which is a very serious matter, right? Uh, and that's what Paul is indicating here. So good, good, good question, Lael. Thanks. Um, okay, any other questions about the deity or personhood of the Spirit? Yes, Lori. Yes. Good. Yeah, because, and that's, that's um, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, but yes, uh, that, that's actually another argument for all of this, right? We've proved the deity of the Son, um, and so once you prove that, right, you're talking about the Spirit of God or you're talking about the Spirit of Christ, right? Um, and it doesn't matter. It's either one, because what we will see, uh, go back to John. I think we looked at this last week, but let's go back there again. Key text when we're talking about Trinitarian relations, go to John 16. Uh, John 16, verses 12 through 15. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. John 16, 12 through 15. Okay, so what do you see here? Yes, <laughs> good. Um, uh, but uh, in, in particular, what is happening? What actions are happening? He's speaking of Christ, but how? Like what? There's a, there's like a process of handing things off. Do you see the process? Yeah. What do you see, Jim? Yeah. Right, so you see a chain where the father hands off to the son, and then the son hands off to the spirit. And so um, you can see that, it, and what I'm trying to point up in relation to Lori's question, is that the, um, the, the, the son is, at least in that verse, giving direction to the spirit. But ultimately, the Son is speaking from God, right? And so both the Father and the Son are handing off to the Spirit to speak, right? So it's equally legitimate to speak of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Father, or the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ. Uh, if you bump back to John 15, 26, you see this reality again, uh, which actually caused... Well, dispute over this verse causes the great, caused the greatest church split in history. Okay? Um, uh, John 15, 26. But when the helper, so he's talking about the paraclete the, in reference to the spirit. When the helper comes, when I, whom I will send, so the son is sending the spirit, 
So, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the idea here is who's sending the Spirit. Well, the Son is sending the Spirit, but the Father is also sending the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. And so that's the idea that the Son, if we think about, and we'll talk about this more as we, in the next couple weeks, but if we think about the ordering that is within the triune life, there's an order to it. Uh, the Father is unsent. The Son is sent, and the Spirit is sent twice, once by the Father and once by the Son. And that you see that reality here. And so in the uh, Nicene-Constantinople Creed of 381, it talks about how the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so that, in relation to your question, Lori, is the idea, we talk about the Spirit of Christ. It's the same Spirit. It's just emphasizing uh, the, the Son sending the Spirit. Um, but that, that, that's very key to understanding the Trinitarian order of life. Now, I said that, that uh, dispute over that caused the greatest split in church history. Um, this was the dispute between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Um, that, that phrase, and from the Son, the Spirit proceeding not only from the Father, but from the Son. Um, there was dispute over that, and it caused the great schism between the Eastern and Western Church in 1054, I think. Um, so it kind of stewed for several centuries and then created the biggest split in church histories to where you have Greek Orthodox and its cousins and, um, and then Western Christianity in the terms of, you know, centered in Rome uh, for many centuries, okay? Well, <laughs> that's going to have to be for another time, right? To delve into all of the... The, the nuance, because here's what happens. So what we're doing, right, is we're looking in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and we're just looking at affirmations of Scripture. So we get an affirmation here, we get an affirmation here, we get an affirmation here. So we get all this data, right? We have all this data about um, uh, there being one God, but then saying the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and also the, the fact that the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct from one another. And so we have all this biblical data, right? And now the church takes several centuries to like hammer out, well, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> like we have the data and it's there in the scriptures, but then how do, we, how do we understand this? How do we bring it all together and conceptualize it right, right? And so that's where you, you know, uh, it takes time to get the Nicene and Nicene Constantinople Creed and the Creeds of Chalcedon, 451, all these major creeds, right? That's the church, like, working hard to try to figure this stuff all out. But then, of course, as today, right, people are reading their Bibles and they're interpreting it differently. And then even maybe they have the same interpretation, but they're trying to construct a right conception of who God is. And they develop uh, terminology to try to incorporate all of this. That uh, is not in the scriptures, that's not necessarily invalid, it's fine, but it's just, uh, and so then they get to things like, and the spirit proceeds from the father and the son, people are reading their scriptures differently, they're, they're arguing differently, and unfortunately in this case, it caused um, the great schism in the church. Now the history and the whys and the wherefores, that why in the world would that cause such a big split, uh, that's a historical question that has a lot of ins and outs to it. And there are good resources out there to, to look into about that. So uh, we just don't have time to go into it right now. So it's a good question. Yeah, Eden. So reading John 16, 7, 
Yes. No. Uh, yeah. So, uh, if you want a resource on this, that's helpful. Um, I, ha I have a book in my library. It's called "God's Indwelling Presence" by a guy named Jim Hamilton, and he walks through this. And there's a couple of key verses in John, in particular, where he argues, and I think I would agree with him, that um, the Spirit didn't indwell anyone in the Old Testament. Now, that does not say he doesn't regenerate people in the Old Testament. So I, 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 um, in in general, if we're talking about Old and New Testament, I would draw a distinction between the category of regeneration and the category of indwelling. This, whenever anyone's saved, it always involves the regenerating work of the Spirit. Um, Old Testament, New Testament, it's always by grace through faith. It's always through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. However, given statements like this, and there's another in chapter 7, uh, where Jesus says, the Spirit is with you, uh, I think it's in chapter 7, to double check, um, but he says to his disciples, the Spirit is with you, and he will be in you. And to me, that communicates, along with this verse that you just pointed out, that when we talk about the Spirit being sent uh, we're talking about a reality of the new covenant. Because even as you look in the old... Um, oh, wow, it's 10. Um, even as you look in the old... Uh, the descriptions of the old covenant, say Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, but especially Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, one of the key marks of the newness of the new covenant is the spirit indwelling God's people to cause them to obey. And that is the key issue with the new covenant is if we look at Israel, like all the machinery is there, including the Davidic covenant, but then they still go into exile because there's a problem with the king and there's a problem with the people. And the problem with the king and the people was pointed out before the ink on the law was dry in Deuteronomy. Because Deuteronomy says, you guys don't have a circumcised heart. You as a nation, there's individuals that have a circumcised heart that are regenerate, but you as a nation don't have the ability to obey this law. And God's going to fix that for Israel and Judah in the new covenant by providing indwelling to cause them to obey the Torah um, such that they can uh, do that. And that's, that's the reality that Jesus is talking about. The new covenant's inaugurated, and it is uh, the Spirit comes to cause us to obey, right, in an indwelling fashion that didn't happen in the old covenant. Um, so that's a very flyby ver version of all of that, but hopefully that helps, helps think about it. Now at this time, in the New Covenant era, the Spirit's going to regenerate you, and, um, and, and, uh, he, uh, and so you have repentance and faith in Jesus, and then you are uh, indwelt by the Spirit. So now in this time, uh, even though regeneration and indwelling are distinct, they happen at the same time. Right, because of the era we are in in redemptive history. Okay, so indwelling is not inherently salvific. Um, regeneration is, uh, but now where we're at in history, uh, we we as new covenant believers enjoy the indwelling of the Spirit as Gentiles, which is astounding. So, okay, um, questions following up on that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Actually, the distinction Paul is 
Sure. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, that whole vision and understanding. And that's really, what you have to understand is a lot of the New Testament, you see it pop up again and again and again, is like, okay, Jesus came, and he came for Israel, but Israel rejected him, but now we're getting all these Gentiles in, as we've been seeing already Jesus foreshadowing in Matthew. So how do we reconcile all of this stuff? <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of work, um, and that's a lot of one of the big questions that shows up over and over again. It shows up in Romans, it shows up in Acts, it shows up in Galatians, it shows up all over the place. Um, because we're trying to understand, okay, what does it mean to be the people of God now? Um, and even in Matthew, we've got the foundations for what Jesus is laying out. Here's what this is going to look like. So, Okay, uh, we're going to have to pause there. Um, here's what I want to summarize at this point. Um, what we have established... And I want you to write this down, okay? Um, or if you have a good memory, uh, then that's fine. But what we have established through walking through the Old Testament and New Testament is this. One, there is one God, Yahweh, and there is no other, okay? That is absolutely true. It has to be true, okay? So that's fact number one. Fact number two, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. That is also true. Each person is fully God. Three, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct from one another. And they are distinct as persons. Each of them is an I that can speak. All right? So those three things. That's the foundation. That's just the starting point. Really, we've just gotten through this. This is not the end of the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the starting point. To be able to start with those three affirmations, those, uh, there is one God, Yahweh, and no other. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct from one another. That's the biblical data, Right? And like I said, then the history of the church unfolds and like, but what does that mean? Right, like uh, we, we have the scriptures, but then the question is, what does that mean? How are they one? How are they three? How do the three relate to one another? How do we relate to the triune God? Those are the key questions that we now have to answer. We just have the biblical data, but now the question is, how do we rightly think in line with scripture with this biblical data. Um, because we're not done. I mean, if you can make those three affirmations and you can prove those people, that's great foundation. But you're not done, right? Because it's just not just about knowing those facts. That's notional knowledge, right? Which is good, but we don't want to just stay at notional knowledge. We want to move to affectional and actional knowledge. And that's the next question is, how are they one? How are they three? How do the three relate to one another? We've seen some of that. 
And then the key question for us then, in terms of application, how do we relate? How do we relate to this God? Not only knowing, but then acting and relating to him rightly in all of who he is. Um, and so we don't want to just stop and say, yes, we can affirm these three facts. How do we live in light of it? How does it change us? And that's where we want to head over the next few weeks, even as we continue to develop this. So, all right, let's pray. Oh, great God, you are who you are. You are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There is one God, and there is no other. Father, you are God. Son, you are God. And Spirit, you are God. And you, Father, Son, and Spirit, are distinct and do distinct things. You work together inseparably, and yet you... You're amazing, oh Lord God. We, we just, we, we we're struggling with language. And we have, as the church, struggled with language to try to represent you rightly, and not just to represent you rightly, but to think of you, to conceive of you rightly. Oh, Father, we want to do that. Please help us. Spirit, um, who authored the scriptures through humans, Lord, you use human language to describe yourself. Help us to rightly reflect that language and not just affirm these truths, but then live in light of the triune God. Help us to do that. I pray that our gathering this morning, the gathering of the local church is the local temple of the triune God, that you, triune God, would be honored in what we do, that you would be greatly glorified, and that we would stir one another up to love and good deeds by speaking of you, by proclaiming you to one another, by encouraging one another, by praying to you, by hearing your word, by singing your praises, Lord, may you be honored and glorified. We thank you so much for sweeping us up into your triune life, even in a derivative sense, O oh Lord God. We, as creatures, thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen.